0: Welcome to BINA, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of BINA, we feature San Francisco writer Rebecca Solnit, who appeared in 2010 upon the release of her book, Paradise and Hell. The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. And now join Brett Metzger on stage at the JCCSF as he introduces Rebecca Solnit.
1: The New York Times has called Rebecca Solnit the kind of rugged, off-road, public intellectual America doesn't produce often enough. She has a rare gift, the ability to turn the act of cognition, of arriving at a coherent point of view, into compelling moral drama. In her previous ten books, Rebecca Solnit has written about disparate topics like Edward Muybridge's photography, San Francisco's urban landscapes, the history of walking, and the nature of political dissent, always taking her mental prey from oblique angles. She traces thematic junctions in art and cultural history and establishes detailed parallels with the direct, present, and contemporary political activism. Her knowledgeable and courageous work has been compared to that of Susan Sontag. Wanderlust explores the cultural history of walking in the author's own words from the peripatetic philosophers of ancient Greek to the contemporary paleontological arguments of bipedal evolution, From an aesthetic pleasure in 18th century England to the growth of politically active walking clubs at the turn of the century and the birth of the outdoor industry and climbing gyms, as well as histories of the rise and fall of urban walking as a pleasure, pedestrian uprisings, and the gender politics of public space. Hollow City, a melancholy topography of San Francisco, documents how the wealth uh, the city inherited from the computer industry has led to the loss of urban diversity In A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Rebecca Solnit gathers together autobiographical essays which reflect on moments of uncertainty, doubt, loss, remembrance, and desire. Rebecca Solnit is here tonight with her new book, A Paradise Built in Hell, which looks at the fleeting, purposeful joys that fills human beings in the face of disasters like hurricanes, earthquakes, and even terrorist attacks. She'll also give us a taste of her new book, Infinite City, A San Francisco Atlas, which reimagines traditional map-making. Uh, those are the maps that, uh, that you got on the way in. Uh, we always look forward to a new project by Rebecca Solnit, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome her here to the JCCSF this evening.
2: Thank you so much for showing up. It's so lovely to be here. I'm going to talk about A Paradise Built in Hell first and then a bit about Infinite City. And hopefully I will not appear to be in a phrase that becomes more and more meaningful for me all over the map. (laughs) uh, The outlines of this particular disaster are familiar. At 5.12 in the morning on April eighteenth, nineteen 1906, about a minute of seismic shaking tore up San Francisco, toppling buildings, particularly those on landfill and swampy ground, cracking and shifting others, collapsing chimneys, breaking water mains and gas lines, twisting streetcar tracks, even tipping headstones in the cemeteries. It was a major earthquake centered right off the coast of the peninsular city, and the damage it did was considerable. Afterward came the fires, both those caused by broken gas means and chimneys and those caused and augmented by the misguided policy of trying to blast fire breaks ahead of the flames and preventing citizens from firefighting in their own homes and neighborhoods. The way the authorities handled the fires was a major reason why so much of the city, nearly five square miles, more than 28,000 structures, was incinerated in one of history's biggest urban infernos before aerial warfare, Nearly every municipal building was destroyed and so were many of the downtown businesses along with mansion slums, middle-class neighborhoods, the dense residential commercial district of Chinatown, newspaper offices and warehouses. The response of the citizens is less familiar. Here is one. Mrs. Anna Amelia Holzhauser, who a local newspaper described as a woman of middle age, buxom and comely, woke up on the floor of her bedroom in Sacramento Street, where the earthquake had thrown her. She took time to dress herself where the ground in her home were still shaking, and that era when getting dressed was no simple matter. Powder, paint, jewelry, hair switch, all were on when I started my flight down the 120 stairs to the street, she recalled. The house in western San Francisco was slightly damaged, her downtown place of business. She was a beautician and masseuse, was a total wreck in her words and so she salvaged what she could and moved on with a friend mr paulson they camped out in union square downtown until the fires came close and soldiers drove them onward so and i should say a lot of you know most of you probably remember hurricane katrina and the haitian earthquake pretty vividly Uh, often beforehand um A lot of things go wrong. The disaster sociologists who uh, I drew a lot from in this book like to say there's no such thing as a natural disaster. Earthquakes are a classic example. If there was no architecture, probably nobody would be hurt in an earthquake. It's It's not the earth that swallows you up. It's the buildings that fall on you. I was actually in the Bruzzi district of Italy last year where they had a horrific earthquake uh, in the spring of 2009, and one of the locals said to me, of course, if this was California, nobody would have died. Um, we now have the best building codes in the world, augmented by the fact that we have some of the best forests in the world, so we have a lot of light, flexible wood to build out of. And the 1906 earthquake, the earthquake would have been a disaster no matter what, and um, You know, in that era of gas lighting and chimneys, et cetera, a lot of fires were started as well as a lot of buildings shattered. But we'll never know what the earthquake did because the fires did so much more, and it was because of misguided policy. The fire chief of San Francisco, who was an enlightened man, was killed almost immediately in the quake. And had he lived, things might have gone differently. But the U.S. Army, under the terrible direction of General Funston, after whom absolutely nothing should be named yeah, <laughs> uh, I actually think we should rename uh, like Fort Funston and Funston Boulevard after somebody like Mary Ellen Pleasant, and Pleasant Boulevard would be great. Although I'm not sure Fort Pleasant makes sense. But he decided, and this is you saw this happen again, you know, this is not uh, ancient history, this happened in Hurricane Katrina, that in the, the aftermath of the disaster, there would be the particular kind of chaos that authorities fear, the chaos of human beings without institutional authority. He assumed that people left it to their natural state, run amok, that their barbaric hordes that we behave either like wolves, marauding wolves, or like frightened sheep, and that we need um, men, men with guns to sort us out. And so he marched all his troops into San Francisco, and it essentially acted as a hostile, occupying army. The accounts of the day by nice middle-class ladies, as well as poor people, are about being driven onward about by bayonet, about being beaten up, about accidental deaths and threats of death um, for Almost anything. They became obsessed with protecting private property, and as in uh, Katrina and the Haitian earthquake, decided, and I you know, started to phrase it this way on, uh, only this year because people just didn't get what was so crazy about it. How many of you believe in the death penalty for petty theft without benefit of trial? At, um, but if you call it looting, and if you frame looting as some sort of barbaric, marauding hordes about to take over, Um, then you often do have the death penalty without benefit of trial for petty theft. And often for what I consider under those circumstances, not even theft but what I call requisitioning or um, scavenging, in the aftermath of an earthquake there is no commerce. In San Francisco in 1906, the banks... You know, the banks burned down, the safes were too hot to open, um, the stores were not open, there was no commerce. Um, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, there was a massive blackout, there were no ATMs, there were no no credit cards being used, there were also no stores open. You know, after you used up what supplies you had on hand, the only way you were going to get food, water, diapers, medical supplies, dry clothes after you'd swum through the filthy waters... Um, you know, et cetera, was by taking them from abandoned stores, um, which is what we often call looting. And there are people who take things they don't need. And um although contrary to popular belief, when you're evacuating uh your region, you probably don't want to carry extra televisions with you. And the obsession about televisions. And in Hurricane Katrina, like grandmothers were dying in attics on unroofs and um the people in power were really obsessed about protecting televisions. And um, Which is wrong. Um, Grandmothers matter more. um, So this happened in 1906. It was part of the madness. It's a lot of why the city burned. And the city did not burn down by accident or because there was a disaster. The city burned down in large part because of this hostile takeover, because of bad judgment, because of what the disaster sociologists I've worked with call elite panic. And since I've already interrupted my lovely flow of narrative, um, I'll keep interrupting it. I talk a lot in A Paradise Built in Hell about institutional authorities who got it wrong. They got it terribly wrong in the 1906 earthquake. Some estimates by the not particularly radical historian Dennis Smith run as high as 500 people killed um, by the military and the National Guard, the cadet troops out of UC Berkeley, et cetera, who were so convinced they were restoring order by driving people like sheep, by preventing citizens from rescuing their own property out of their own homes, from fighting fires, from um, doing a lot of uh, things that were necessary. Yet, um, You know, there were horrific stories. There was somebody was at uh, at a distance, appeared to be um, looting from a pile of rubble. Uh, They shot first and got up close and saw he was actually trying to rescue somebody trapped in the rubble a lot of those bodies were thrown in the the bay or the fires which is why we don't know how many were killed the same things happened in hurricane katrina my friend ac thompson who i essentially brought to new orleans to investigate the vigilantes who went nuts um after hurricane katrina and killed a, probably killed a number of black men we know for sure they tried to kill one uh, uh or tried to kill many of them because they were so convinced that these men wanted to take their TVs and uh, they decided all black men were looters and that they were, had the right to administer the death penalty to all looters. And uh, But it's come out recently because of my friend A.C. Thompson's work that actually some of the police chief captains gave orders to shoot looters, and uh, people were shot for all kinds of reasons only five years ago um, in another American city who should have not been shot, who should have not been treated like the enemy when people were already desperate and so many had already died. But then, of course, the question is when do governments get things right? They didn't get things entirely wrong in 9-11, although a lot of terrible decisions were made. Uh, Mayor Giuliani decided to put his emergency control uh, bunker – when you think of a bunker, you think of something safe and underground and reinforced. He put it on the um, – I think the 16th floor of uh, Trade Tower 7 – Next to the only uh, buildings attacked by terrorists in the history of the United... You know, outside terrorists in the history of the United States. Um, The bunker in the sky, that was the most unsafe place you could have it. And he looked so heroic because he was striding around, but that's because his command center had already been destroyed because it was in the wrong place. Had it been in Brooklyn or someplace where it should have been, he would have just been in his command center without any drama. And then shortly afterwards, uh, they decided to suppressed the EPA's reports that the air was hazardous to breathe, which is why so many firemen and other emergency workers and people who are there now have what's called trade center cough and uh, serious health problems. They made a lot of other bad decisions, but they weren't that bad. But actually, one of the places where things were done pretty well was San Francisco in 1989. How many of you were here for the Loma Prieta earthquake? Wow, you're a group who doesn't move around much. That's great. (laughs) No, I, I, you know, people, that sounds like I think you're sticking the with. I, I was here in 89. I was I was here, I was in the Bay Area. I've been in the Bay Area since I was four. I, the longer you stay in one place, the more you know it, the more empowered a citizen you are, the more you know. Things don't have to be like this. They used to be like that. This is how it works. This is who did this before, etc. But in 1989, the fire department was... Overwhelmed. And the 1989 earthquake was, uh, you know, the, I don't get into how we rate earthquakes and how big they are and all the different ways of measuring them. But it was a 7.1, which was big, but not, nothing, you know, it was 100 times smaller than the 1906 earthquake in magnitude, more or less. And, um, but it was big enough. And the fire department was overtaxed. There were enough fires and the marina fires were so huge. It tapped all their resources And the powers that be at the time wisely asked, well, if we're overwhelmed by a disaster on this magnitude, what will happen in what we've all learned fondly to call the big one? And they took this really remarkable step that uh, is really uh, a pilot program for the country. They created NERT, the Neighborhood Emergency Response Teams, which, how many of you are NERT members? We have some of them here on a table here. Oh, some of you. Why are all the NERT members on that side of the room? I could raise my hand, too. I'm, I, I have a slightly expired certificate, but I will retain. You get an uh, extremely unfashionable outfit of a safety vest and a and a yellow helmet. Fantastic training about what to do in an emergency. Um, flashlights, uh, phone numbers, badges. And Essentially, it empowers you to do what ordinary citizens ordinarily do in disasters anyway, which is to take care of yourself and the people around you, the neighbors, the strangers, to improvise the circumstances of our survival, the really beautiful things people do in a disaster that my book is really about. But Nert formalizes it. Nert says that rather than the institutional authorities treating the public as an enemy and pretending that they can regain control and that control is what it's about, they recognize that they cannot be in control, that this is too big. They're, and San Francisco would need 10 times as many fire engines and firefighters to respond to something on the scale of a 1906 earthquake, and that's not going to happen. So the alternative is to delegate the citizens to to do it for themselves. And... And it's a program based on trust. What's important for me, the reason I wrote this book, is that behind the various responses to disaster are theories of human nature. Authoritarians believe or claim that in the absence of institutional authority, by which we mean uh, power backed by the threat of violence and sometimes explicit violence, that in the absence of that, we are Hobbesian creatures uh, practicing the war of each against each. We are social Darwinists competing savagely for survival. And even in Katrina you heard those horrible Victorian cliches about the thin veneer of civilization being peeled off, which um, distinguished and not so distinguished newspaper columnists used and never apologized for when it turned out they were responding to hysterical rumors uh, promulgated by a panic rumor-driven press uh, and all those murders and rapes and you know, et cetera, did not take place in the superdome, et cetera. But, um, so there's an authoritarianism that believes that um, we w- we will be chaotic, we will be sheep and wolves um, if they don't take control. What happened with the NERT program I think it's quite beautiful. It essentially trusts citizens. It says in the absence of institutional authority, when the system breaks down, people are actually very resourceful, they're altruistic, they're creative, they're brave they're generous and we're going to and we're going to trust them. And in fact that's a much wiser decision because it actually works. The field of disaster sociology arose out of the Second World War and the rise of the Cold War when the US began to prepare for an all-out nuclear war with the Soviet Union, which was a crazy thing to do to begin with. They started to say crazy things and I, I actually was shocked to read people saying things like the citizens of the United States pose a greater threat than nuclear the, the nuclear weapons of the enemy. This notion that we would somehow become so unhinged, so destructive, so savage, that we were ourselves kind of a lethal weapon, a super weapon. So they sent sociologists to study what do people do in disasters. And the sociologists began to turn all the conventional wisdom upside down, all those hysterical stories upside down. What they've done isn't widely enough known, which is why I wrote this book, um, which hasn't made it widely enough known yet. But it's helped a little bit, I think. But most people are calm. They're altruistic. They're resourceful. They're creative. And uh, they do these remarkable things like Mrs. Uh, Amelia Holzhauser, who we will get back to. So she salvaged what she could and moved on with a friend, Mr. Paulson. They camped out in Union Square downtown until the fires came close and soldiers drove them onward. Like thousands of others, they ended up trudging with their bundles to Golden Gate Park, the thousand-acre park that runs all the way west to the Pacific Ocean. There they spread, spread an old quilt and lay down, not to sleep, but to shiver with cold from fog and mist, and to watch the flames of the burning city whose blaze shone far above the trees. On their third day in the park, she stitched together blankets, carpets, and sheets to make a tent that sheltered 22 people, including 13 children. And Holzhouser started a tiny soup kitchen with one tin can to drink from, and one pie plate to eat off. All over the city, stoves were hauled out of damaged buildings. Fire was forbidden indoors since many standing homes had gas leaks, or damaged flues, or chimneys or primitive stoves were built out of rubble and people commenced to cook for each other, for strangers, for anyone in need. Her generosity was typical even if her initiative was exceptional.
0: You're listening to San Francisco writer Rebecca Solman, whose book is Paradise and Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. On Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org.
2: If you go to the Public Library's uh, photo archive and, and do a search on earthquake kitchens, you find hundreds of wonderful photographs of these kitchens of... All these women in uh, Edwardian dresses, um, making these little shacks, these little rubble stoves, these amazing things. And uh, it's really beautiful and uh, kind of amazing and kind of useful because we might all be doing it again. I live near the tip of the panhandle. If I'm still there when the big one comes, um, I'll cook for you. (laughs) Or maybe you'll cook for me somewhere else in the city. Holzhouser got funds to buy eating utensils across the bay in Oakland. The kitchen began to grow, and she's soon feeding two to 300 people a day, not a victim of disaster but a victor over it and the hostess of a popular social center, her brother's and sister's keeper. Some visitor from Oakland liked her makeshift dining camp so well they put up a sign, Palace Hotel, naming it ironically after the burned-out downtown luxury establishment that was reputedly the largest hotel in the world. Humorous signs were common around the camps and street-side shelters. Nearby on Oak Street, a few women ran the Oyster Loaf and the Chat Noir, two little shacks with their names in fancy cursive. A shack in Jefferson Square was titled The House of Mirth, with additional signs jokingly offering rooms for rent with steam heat and elevators. The the inscription on the side of Hoffman's Cafe, another little street-side shack, read, Cheer up! Have one on me! Come in and spend a quiet evening! A menu chalked on the door of Camp Necessity, a tiny shack, included the menu items, fleas eyes raw, 98 cents, pickled eels, nails fried, 13 cents, Flies' legs on toast, nine cents. Crab's tongue stewed. Ending with rainwater fritters with umbrella sauce, nine dollars and ten cents. And that's on the website. You can download that and own it yourself. It's so great. The appetite Killery may be the most ironic name, but the most famous inscription read, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may have to go to Oakland. <laughs> Many had already gone there or to hospitable Berkeley, and the railroads carried many much further away for free. The free giveaways were one of the amazing things, too. Uh, East of uh, Petrero Hill, there were all these huge slaughterhouses. The meat would have spoiled anyway, and so most of them decided to give it away. But they didn't just try and get rid of it. They actually put enormous effort, as did butchers and dairymen, et cetera, into distributing Food to these kitchens. So you know, this beautiful thing, where people were cooking for strangers, where people were coming around with ten gallon uh, cans of milk, with big piles of meat, with bread, etc., and just giving it away. It was this kind of idyllic society. This uh, you know era of the jubilee. It was remarkably beautiful, and people had this kind of celebratory atmosphere. About 3,000 people had died. At least half the city was homeless. Families were shattered. The commercial district was smoldering ashes, and the army from the military base at the city's northern end was terrorizing many citizens. As soon as the newspapers resumed printing, they began to publish long lists of missing people and of the new locations at which displaced citizens and sundered families could be found. Despite or perhaps because of this, the people were for the most part calm and cheerful, and many survived the earthquake with gratitude and generosity. Edwin Emerson recalled that after the quake, when the tents of the refugees in the funny street kitchens improvised from doors and shutters and And pieces of roofing overspread all the city Such merriment became an accepted thing Everywhere during those long moonlit evenings One could hear the tinkle of guitars and mandolins from among the tents Or passing by the grotesque rows of curbstone kitchens One became dimly aware of the low murmurings of couples Who'd sought refuge in these dark recesses As in bowers of love It was at this time that the droll signs and inscriptions Began to appear on walls and tent flaps which soon became one of the familiar sites of reconstructing San Francisco. The overworked marriage clerk, license clerk has deposed that the fees collected by him for issuing such licenses during April and May 1906 far exceeded the totals for the same months of any preceding years in San Francisco. Emerson himself had rushed to the scene of disaster from New York, pausing to telegraph a marriage proposal of his own to a young woman in San Francisco, who wrote a letter of rejection that was still in the mail when she met her suitor in person amid the wreckage and accepted. They were married a few weeks later. Disaster requires an ability to embrace contradiction in both the minds of those undergoing it and those trying to understand it from afar. In each disaster, there is suffering, there are psychic scars that will be felt most when the emergency is over. There are deaths and losses. Satisfactions, newborn social bonds, and liberations from everyday concerns are often also profound. Of course, one factor in the gap between the usual accounts of disaster and actual experience is that those accounts focus on the small percentage of people who are wounded, killed, orphaned, and otherwise devastated, often at the epicenter of the disaster, along with officials involved. Surrounding them, often in the same city or even neighborhood, is a periphery of many more who are largely undamaged but profoundly disrupted. And it is the disruptive power of disaster that matters here, the ability of disasters to topple old orders and open new possibilities. This broader effect is what disaster does to society. In the moment of disaster, the old order no longer exists, and people improvise rescue shelters and communities. Thereafter, a struggle takes place over whether the old order with all its shortcomings and injustices will be reimposed or a new one perhaps more oppressive perhaps more just and free more like the disaster utopia will arise the disaster sociologists I worked with uh, notably Lee Clark and Karen Chess coined the term elite panic for how a lot of people in power behave in disasters. Uh, the kind of crazy stuff I've been talking about in Katrina and to some extent 9-11, Haiti and 1906, among others. Uh, the Mexico City earthquake in 1985 and so many others. And panic implies that it's senseless, that it's pointless. But there is some logic to their response. They're not trying they're, – when they're trying to restore order, as they say, they're not just trying to restore – the working of social services. Uh, they're also trying to restore the status quo that serves them and doesn't necessarily serve the rest of us. A disaster often unfolds as though a revolution has already taken place. And later in the book, I talk about this, the language of people living through an upheaval like the Paris Commune, the French Revolution, the Zapatista uprising, these other uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the, in the the Prague revolution of 1989 the language is very similar to language of disaster where people are living in the streets they feel deeply connected they're no longer worry about past and traumas and future anxieties, they're in the moment a lot of social divides no longer matter and they feel connected in a different way it is a very um, subversive feeling um, it's a feeling of popular power it's a sort of resurrected or reborn civil society. And civil society is not necessarily what those in power uh, yearn for us to feel. I really thought in 9-11 in particular, the Bush administration was less frightened by Al-Qaeda and the collapse of the trade towers than by this powerful feeling, this sudden intense attention to these major questions about foreign policy, about energy, about democracy, about security... Um, in this disaster where the military had proven totally irrelevant and the only people who had successfully resisted the terrorists were the unarmed passengers of the plane that crashed and that filled in Pennsylvania. And um, everything was open to question. And uh, most of you remember that first – those first few days at First Weekers as the whole country paused to think deeply, to feel deeply connected. Suddenly books about foreign policy and Islam and the Middle East were flying off the shelves. People wanted it to be like World War II. They wanted to have a Franklin Delano Roosevelt who asked us to sacrifice, to pay attention, to engage, to change our lives, and people would have done that. I don't know who should have been president you know, since Franklin Roosevelt wasn't around. I don't know if Obama or Al Gore or somebody would have been good enough. But it could have been terribly different, and the Bush administration told us to shut up, shut shut our minds down, go shopping, not not ask questions, to spy on our neighbors, to bomb um, you know to bomb civilians to justify this ridiculous war on terror that we 're still caught up in, and they really fought a war against us, against our open minds, against our power, against our questions, and they won it to some extent, not entirely, but you know these are very dangerous and exciting moments they 're terrible, and i don 't wish they would happen i 'm not saying disaster is a good recipe for anything you know it would be better if they didn't happen but when they do happen there are silver linings and strange possibilities and those are tremendously interesting of course people who are deeply and devastatingly affected may yet find something redemptive in their experience while those who are largely unaffected may be so rattled they are immune to the other possibilities Curiously, people further from the epicenter of a disaster are often more frightened, but this seems to be because what you imagine is overwhelming or terrifying while at leisure becomes something you can and must cope with when... When it's uh, in your face, there is no time for fear. William James was actually the philosopher was actually teaching at Stanford University, had a profoundly positive experience of the earthquake and wrote an amazing essay about it. That was really the first essay on the psychology of disaster that I drew on heavily. His brother, the novelist Henry James, and London essentially had conniptions and a fit of the vapors, and uh, freaking out about what he decided reading newspaper accounts must have happened to his brother and sister-in-law, and that's that's often typical of disasters. Even after, an amazing thing about the nine eleven is that twenty six thousand people calmly evacuated themselves and each other. Nobody panicked. Um, people ran, but running was what is often described as panic. Um, when a building is about to collapse, um, running as fast as you can is a really smart thing to do. It's not hysterical. It's not panicky. But the media often calls a lot of behavior panicky. Um, that isn't. Some of those stories are remarkable, too. A uh, quadriplegic accountant was carried down 67 floors by his co-workers... And one of the most moving accounts is by a young man in one of these financial firms we don't think of as being about altruism and solidarity and et cetera. But uh, people behaved, you know, those kind of competitive marketplace values kind of don't matter in those moments. Uh, They fall away in some sense, although Wall Street didn't wake up and say, maybe that's not how the world really runs. Maybe that's not who we want to be, unfortunately. But... um, Yeah, or fortunately, depending on your your persuasion. But uh, so this young young financial guy um, was running with his co-workers. And in the oral history he did shortly afterwards, he said, I was an athlete in college. I was running faster than the rest of them. And that's... You know, that makes sense. And he says, so I slowed down. The trade towers are collapsing. You know, the craziest, most unimaginable, most terrifying form of strange death is at your heels. And you slow down, not out of solidarity with your children, your beloved, you know, your closest friends, but with your coworkers in some financial firm. People do really extraordinary things. And you hear these stories are so occasionally told. Those exceptions are often not told at all. If anybody did anything stupid or destructive that's often that's often told us who we are there was these rumors that firemen were stealing pants from the gap which seems really unlikely it was you know it's like stealing those televisions in katrina and it was kind of that's human nature and it's like you know the firemen were i mean, the firemen were getting crazy gifts my cousin's a firefighter in Manhattan he was definitely not stealing from the gap uh you know he was ending up backstage with you 2 and the widows were getting these crazy compensation packages of millions of dollars and you know people were uh bringing food and everything else to the firefighters and uh you know they eventually ended up with too much of everything and um so Uh, And the media is one of the institutions that tends to panic and get often. Not everybody. The people on the ground often do good things. But the old rumors get recirculated about ghoulish, vampiric thieves. And the 06 earthquake and many others about people cutting off the fingers of corpses to get out their diamond rings. And just all this crazy stuff that doesn't actually happen much. So... There are no simple rules for the emotions. We speak mostly of happy and sad emotion, a divide that suggests a certain comic lightness on the one side and pure negativity on the other. Perhaps we would navigate our experiences better by thinking in terms of deep and shallow, rich and poor. The very depth of emotion, the connecting to the core of one's being, the calling into play of one's strongest feelings and abilities can be rich even on deathbeds in wars and emergencies while well, what is often assumed to be the circumstance of happiness sometimes is only insulation from the depths, or so the plagues of ennui and angst among the comfortable suggests. Next door to Holzhouser's kitchen, an aid team from the mining boomtown of Tonopah, Nevada, sat up and began to deliver wagonloads of supplies to the back of Holzhouser's tent. The Nevadans got on so well with impromptu cook and hostess They gave her a guest register whose inscription read in part in cordial appreciation of her prompt philanthropic and efficient service to the people in general and particular to the Tonopah Board of Trade Relief Committee May her good deeds never be forgotten. Thinking that the place's palace hotel sign might cause confusion, they rebaptized it, and maybe baptize is the wrong word here since it's a very Jewish place I'm about to tell you about. They renamed it the Mitzpah Cafe after the Mitzpah Saloon in Tonopah, and a new sign was installed. The ornamental letters spelled out above the name, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin, and those below established April 23, 1906. The Hebrew word mitzvah says one encyclopedia is an emotional bond between those who are separated either physically or by death. Another says it was the Old Testament watchtower where the people were accustomed to meet in great national emergencies. Another source described it as symbolizing a sanctuary and a place of hopeful anticipation. The ramshackle material reality of Holzhouser's improvised kitchen seemed to matter not at all in comparison with its shining social role. It ran through June of 1906 when Holzhauser wrote her memoir of the earthquake. Her piece is as remarkable for what it didn't say. It didn't speak of fear of enemies, conflict, chaos, crime, despondency, or trauma. Just as her kitchen was one of many spontaneously launched community centers and relief projects, so her resilient resourcefulness represents an ordinary response in many disasters. In them, strangers become friends and collaborators, goods are shared freely, people improvise new roles for themselves. Imagine a society where money plays little or no role, where people rescue each other and then care for each other, where food is given away, where life is mostly out of doors in public where the old divides between people seem to have fallen away and the fate that faces them no matter how grim is far less so for being shared, where once... Much considered impossible, both good and bad, is now possible or present, and where the moment is so pressing that old complaints and worries fall away, where people feel important, purposeful, at the center of the world. It is by its very nature unsustainable and evanescent, but like a lightning flash, it sheds light on ordinary life, and like lightning, it sometimes shatters the old forms. It is utopia itself for many people, That is only a brief moment during terrible times, and at the time they managed to hold both irreconcilable experiences, the joy and the grief. San Francisco has been called the city that destroyed itself, but a king is not his country and a government is not the people. Neither the city nor its citizens destroyed San Francisco. A handful of men in power and a swarm of soldiers, national guardsmen, and militiamen did, Or they destroyed much of the city made of architecture and property, even as they claimed to defend it from fire and from the public that was portrayed over and over as a potential or actual mob or bunch of thieves. The citizens responded differently to the occasion as they took care of each other and reinforced the society that each city is first and foremost. The writer Mary Austin, who was there for the earthquake and its aftermath, said that the people of San Francisco became houseless, but not homeless— For it comes to this with the bulk of San Franciscans that they discovered the place and the spirit to be home rather than the walls and the furnishings. No matter how the insurance totals foot up, what landmarks, what treasures of artery vanished. San Francisco, our San Francisco is all there yet. Fast as the tall banners of smoke rose up and the flames reddened them, rose up with them something impalpable like an exhalation. Mary Austin San Francisco didn't burn down but rose up.
0: This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who have spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guest is San Francisco writer Rebecca Solnit, whose book is Paradise and Hell: The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org.
2: No one had a better time of it than the journalist who published a piece in her San Francisco newspaper, The Bulletin, 11 Days After the Quake, titled How It Feels to be a Refugee and Have Nothing in the World, by Pauline Jacobson, who was one of them. Jacobson, an observant Jew and playful writer who'd studied philosophy at the University of California, plunged straight into the reasons for that joy that hover around the other accounts. She'd lost everything in the earthquake except, unlike the majority of her fellow citizens, her job, Gone over to Oakland to buy a stock of face creams and soap and dresses, and then decided against the purchases. Had she bought the goods she explained, she would have had to buy a trunk to put them in. To buy a trunk would entail hiring someone to carry it. And that, as she put it, meant to return to at least a partial degree of the old permanency. This permanency for her included class divides, becoming an employer, owning something while others own nothing. And I slipped my money back into my purse. All too soon would return the halo encircling exclusiveness. All too short would be this reign of inclusiveness. There was plenty of time for petty possessions, plenty of time for the supercilious snubbing of the man or woman, not clad according to the canons of the fashionable dressmaker or tailor. In the meantime, how nice to feel that no one would take it sadly amiss were you to embrace the scavenger man and an excess of joy at seeing him among the living or to walk the main street with a Chinese cook. Have you noticed with your merest acquaintance of ten days back How you wring his hand when you encounter him these days How you hang on to it like grim death As if he were some dearly beloved relative You are afraid the bowels of the earth will swallow up again It's like a glad gay good holiday All this reunioning I heard this actually from somebody who lived a block from the trade towers She went to return something at the big discount store And there was this cranky saleswoman who'd always been snippy to her and she you know, and she walked in and they saw each other and they started to cry. At um, but for those who'd been maimed or lost family members, the earthquake was not so positive, though Jacobson describes being shaken and disturbed, as well as feeling fond of even the merest acquaintance. The truly destitute had no such ready opportunity to choose or reject expanding their possessions or hiring an expressman to carry them. It's also to say, hard to say how happy the scavenger man was to be embraced, or the Chinese cook to promenade with a white newspaper woman. The joys of disaster are not ubiquitous, but they're often widespread and they're profound, and they may well have been embraced by these working men. And Jacobson gets at something essential when she talks about walking through the ruins at dusk with a man who asked, May I walk with you? It's lonesome walking alone. She says, we smiled and nodded and took him in as if we had known him all our lives. A bold welcome in those days of strict boundaries for women. When a soldier said that ladies could walk on the sidewalk but men must stick to the street, Jacobson and her friends chose to walk through the burned bricks and fallen telegraph wires, the middle of the street with their newfound acquaintance. Everybody talks to everyone else, a young woman wrote a friend. I've added hundreds to my acquaintance without introductions. Women who'd been bound by Victorian conventions about who they might speak to or know felt liberated by the lifting of all these rules, as do people in most disasters when the boundaries fall away and every stranger can be spoken to and all share the experience. This was in the, uh, many of the tales of San Francisco in 1989 and of other disasters I heard about directly from glowing people. Jacobson believes something in that joy was lasting. She concludes... Most of us since then have run the whole gamut of human emotions from glad to sad and back again. But underneath it all, a new note is struck, a quiet, bubbling joy is felt. It is that note that makes all our loss worth the while. It is the note of a millennial good fellowship. In all the grand exodus, everybody was your friend and you in turn everybody's friend. The individual, the isolated self, was dead, The social self was regnant. Never, even when the four walls of one's own room in a new city shall close around us again, shall we sense the old lonesomeness shutting us off from our neighbors. Never again shall we feel singled out by fate for the hardships and ill luck that's going. And that is the sweetness and the gladness of the earthquake and the fire, not of bravery, not of strength, not of a new city, but of a new inclusiveness, the joy in the other fellow. So I did that book, and there were these really beautiful and moving and extremely subversive uh, characters and stories and ideas. I got very involved in New Orleans. I've been there, I think, now 11 times since, 10, 10 or 11 since Hurricane Katrina. I have a lot of friends there. I'll probably go back for the rest of my life. But I spent a lot of time thinking about death and dismemberment and loss and trauma. I got involved in investigating murders in uh, New Orleans. And talked to people about death in other cities uh, yeah, like the Mexico city, where perhaps twenty thousand people died in the great earthquake of october nineteen eighty five and um, you know and I, it was really part of what I felt of as becoming much more a public writer uh, during the bush era and a person who, because of the bush era, was dealing with international subjects i felt i felt A little bit homeless in a way, a little bit displaced myself because I'd been spending time in New Orleans and Mexico City and New York City, you know, and uh, dealing with the wars in the Middle East and things like that. I'd written a book about hope, uh, and I'd written this book, which had really been five years of being involved in disaster, starting with uh, an essay that began as a public lecture in 2004, that went to press in Harper's Magazine the day Hurricane Katrina struck, at which point I decided people really needed to know this stuff, and I should spend more time with it. So and I thought I was going to read you a bit from the introduction to the Atlas, but we don't have that much time, so I think I'll just talk about it. When my friend Frank Smigal, who was the new uh, education and public events curator at MoMA, asked me to propose a project for the 75th anniversary it was a wonderful opportunity to come home and to do something a little bit more festive and upbeat you've all seen one of the more serious maps i've done the right wing of the dev you know it's not a fluffy project i like to think there's some very serious and radical unpolemical polemical content in there but it was wonderful coming home and just spending time in the city Mary Austin has that wonderful uh, comment that a city is not just its its architecture and property, it's its people. And I not only explore the physical city, but I talk to all these people who I think of as kind of the living library of knowledge. People who are experts on butterflies, on food, on toxics, on labor history. On the on the Lost City, uh, I talked to photographers and artists, and I worked very closely with the wonderful designer Leah Chandra at UC Press and with two cartographers who live in the Richmond District, or rather the cartographer Ben Peace and his wife, Shizu uh, Chis, uh, Segal, who uh, did all the maps in the book. And uh, just had wonderful adventures. It really brought me back home in a great way. It was fun writing the budget for the project, which was large because I... Brought in twenty-seven other people, including the cartographers. I think twelve uh, or thirteen artists, and uh, no, about eleven rather writers, and um, all these sources of information. But so with SFMOMA, we decided to do the public programs. Part of the second half of their seventy-fifth anniversary year, as this series of broadsides, one a month for six months, with public events in conjunction with each one. The next one, uh, it's a particularly, it's the only double uh, double header map. There's a smaller map by the wonderful artist Jaime Cortez on one side, and a map that's a collaboration between Guillermo Gomez Peña and I on the the front side, and the project is called "All Identity is Local," and it's really wonderful. And then there'll be two more maps after that. But, of course, I believe that all roads lead to books. And so when SF MOMA said yes to this project, to my amazement, since I was like, I'm not even an artist, um, I can't believe I'm doing the big art project for the second half of the anniversary. But it's also really wonderful. I've been in San Francisco all my adult life. I moved here when I was 18 from um, the North Bay. And... Um, when I was a grad student at UC Berkeley, I actually worked on the 50th anniversary. And part of the joy of staying in places is that you get these long continuities. I have not made plans for the 100th anniversary of SF MoMA. Although, um, I will, I, you know, by the actuarial tables, I'm supposed to still be alive. I'm supposed to have about an, another dozen years or so. Um, but so I ran to UC Press and I said, of course, what I really want to do is an atlas. So the book is this wonderful, the, the maps... Um, Here are a little bit larger than they'll be in the book, but the book is 12 inches high and 7 inches wide, which means when you open it, you get a a 12 by 14 inch map, about four-fifths the size of the maps you have. It's full color, 22 maps. And my goal was to make maps beautiful, desirable, luscious again, the way they were in the 18th and 19th century atlases, we love, I found out that everybody loves maps. There's been a lot of joy in this project and it's wonderful being able to give them away. But I also want to do some of the things you have in those traditional atlases. And the artist, Allison Pebworth, who I'd love to do a whole atlas with sometime, made the most stupendous title page. And she also made the Infinite City Mobius strip logo you'll see on all the maps, all the broadsides. And um, so we made a beautiful book and an innovative book and um, it's called Infinite City, both in homage to the writer Otalo Calvino's book, Invisible Cities, where, which is a dialogue between Marco Polo and Kublai Khan, where Marco Polo keeps telling him about all these different strange, magical, poetic cities, each of which may be a version of his city, Venice. And that suggests that cities exist in infinite versions, and that's what I wanted to get at. San Francisco is a small city, it's seven by seven miles, but it's inexhaustible topically, a lot of the maps are doubled because one of the things that I love about cities and particularly the cities is that the coexistence that this is a city that has at uh, um, you know I wanted so i uh, partly to just make good use of space. I made a lot of the maps dual, but also suggest that uh, that all mapping is arbitrary. One of the things that's happened with maps going online is that they're not very pretty, um they're not permanent, and they often are very. Kind of normalizing when you look at Google Maps, it will tell you all about freeway exits and often in the san francisco map uh, map versions i 've looked at it will tell you where restaurants are it won't tell you where strange historic events took place it won't tell you where certain species of trees grow or butterfly habitat or murders or some of the other things we 've mapped and so a lot of the maps we did are our dual we have one called um, Death and beauty, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle maps the year 's murders the previous year 's murders every January. I was really struck by that that murder actually has a map, and I was like, "What is the opposite of death and you know I thought about inventions and births and things, but that was too obvious, and I decided that I wanted something that was somehow balm for those those terrible those violent deaths, and so I thought beauty. And then went through this whole thought process of what is beauty. I didn't want it to be something rich people on the, the nonviolent side of town have. And we ended up making it Monterey Cypress Trees, which are kind of the signature tree for San Francisco, which don't get recognized enough and which are all over town, including McLaren Park and all over the housing projects, particularly that amazing housing project with the golf course um, at the south, uh, uh, the Sunnyside housing projects at the south end of the city. Monarchs and Queens is about the coexistence of butterfly habitat and queer public space, which is about a, a very human city and a natural city, but, but about the way San Francisco has been a refuge and a place that allows diverse and eclectic species that might not flourish elsewhere to flourish. And my friend Aaron Schurin, the poet, wrote the wonderful essay that's on the back of that map, which really suggests. Uses a lot of butterfly metaphors of spreading your wings, of coming out of your cocoon to connect that. We mapped a lot of things that had disappeared. Um, the uh, on the Fillmore, we we're ma- we looked a lot of what redevelopment did. We looked at the old industrial city that disappeared in a lot of different ways. We mapped coffee, looking at the way that a single cup of coffee with milk brings together the the pastoral landscape of a dairy farm. Uh, which in the Bay Area Forch is one of the nice farms of the North Bay, most likely the uh, the alpine landscape of Hetch Hetchy and the tropical landscape of coffee growing. Uh, we mapped the water and sewer systems that you know, bring you the water for your coffee and take away what happens afterwards, um, and we put ninety nine cafes on the map. And it was interesting looking, you cannot map all the cafes of San Francisco, how you cannot map the city. You know, each one of you could be not mapped in one map, but in many maps. There's a map of your everyday routines. There's a map of you just within San Francisco. There's a map of, you know, where your people emigrated from, however long ago that was, of where the rest of your family lives, if they're outside of the city, of every place you've ever traveled, of where all the things you own come from, of... You know, there's a million ways to map. There was a wonderful uh, movie and then TV show in the 50s. There's a million stories in the Naked City. There's also a million maps. Uh, The goal of Infinite City was not to be comprehensive. The maps are quite idiosyncratic. I thought up most of them, and my friend's uh, artists, proposed the rest of them. But to really allow people to open up the inexhaustibility of the city for people to continue mapping it in their imaginations and maybe on paper and to maybe begin mapping other places in this way uh, we have 22 maps but um, each of you contain far more than that so that was the project, I also wanted to suggest that you you can travel around the world without leaving home and we have a version, you know, we have a you know, with the Russian and Asian populations in Outer Richmond, and the weather, we have a kind of Siberia. We have a we have a tropics in the Sun Belt uh, with all the Central Americans and the out in the Mission and Excelsior. You know, we have Chinatown. We have um, you know a Samoan. We have a, a, a neighborhoods where a lot of Samoans live. We have you know we now have Little Saigon in the Tenderloin. We have. Uh, we have Italy We have You know Just this sense also I wanted There's a wonderful line By Thoreau and Walden I have traveled widely and conquered. I wanted people To travel widely In San Francisco To realize That You know Before you go to Egypt Or England Recognize that You haven't really been To San Francisco yet In a lot of ways And I've been here For 30 years This year and, you know, for 15 years before that, I was coming into the city to explore. And there's when I started this project, I realized how many places I hadn't been. And then I went to a lot of places I hadn't been for this project, but there's still so many more. And one of the things that's really, you know, I learned, I write these books not because I know things, but because I want to learn things, and they, I've learned so much from this project. And one of the things I feel so much more conscious of, I was thinking about it today when I saw a Meals on Wheels van go by, is that we more is better and these amazing moments that are kind of across the board in some ways in disaster are great, but there is a lot of it already, and we're not in a totally alienated, isolated society. There's NERT. There's Meals on Wheels. There's um, so many people who work with the homeless. There's so many people who work with the disabled. There's the, we did a map of the mission where we mapped all the social services in the mission, and it's shocking. There's like forty. Uh, organizations from homeless shelters to after-school tutoring centers and things that actually there's a huge amount of it already but when you decide it's a positive value and decide to look for it then it's really like seeing the butterflies how do you protect it how do you expand its habitat how do you make people aware of it and nurture it you know and that it does exist in it does exist in a lot of ways already and so the question is you know, I come from the left, and the left is always saying we should – we lack and we should start something. And these days I tend to say more. We already have – we're like I feel like we're in the middle of a revolution that started 50 years ago rather than when does the revolution start. It's like the world is so different than the world I was born into. Rather than saying how do we start the revolution. And the same way rather than say how – where do we – you know, why don't we have communities? We do have it. We could use a lot more – and I also think San Francisco, and this is what connects these two projects, San Francisco does have a strong civil society, a strong public life, because it's a pedestrian city, a city where there are people love their public places, a city that people care about. And, you know, it's not that we're not doing it, it's just that we need more of what we're doing, what a lot of us are doing already.
1: All right. Thank you very much.
0: Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was San Francisco writer Rebecca Solnit, who appeared in 2010 upon the release of her book Paradise in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanim Trio. And the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast and you can find it at kalw.org.
1: Thanks for listening.